You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello, I'm Harriet Vickers and welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week it's all about risk as we bring you two reports from Risky Business, the conference where speakers from a wide range of hazardous industries came together to share ideas. Firstly, Pat Cross Kerry explains how thinking more analytically and less intuitively leads to better diagnostic decisions. The failed diagnosis area, which is wrong diagnosis, delayed diagnosis, um, misdiagnosis, accounted for the most legal actions against practitioners. We also look at the contentious subjects of medical litigation and ask if it improves patient safety. This country can't really afford simply to provide adequate and proper compensation to all who are disabled or ill or injured. And uh, a fault system has the double effect of compensating only those who are wronged and avoidably injured and making pay uh, those um, institutions and individuals only those who have acted carelessly in a way they should not. But before we get on to risk, I'm joined in the studio by the BMJ's senior news editor, Annabel Ferryman, with her pick of this week's news stories. Hello, Annabelle. Thanks very much for coming in. Hi, Harriet. So what's caught your eye this week? Well, I've picked three stories. Um, I'm going to kick off with uh, one which is a bit of good news because that's so rare. Somehow these days there's so many reports criticising the NHS or doctors. And this one is a really wonderful piece of news. Um, There's been a survey done by the European Association for Cardiothoracic Surgery. And it shows that rates of success in England are much higher than that in Europe as a whole, 25% higher to be precise. What they looked at was mortality after bypass surgery. And they found that in England, um, the rates of mortality was 1.8%, whereas in Europe as a whole, it was 2.4%. And in fact, actually in Wales, it was as little as 1.1%. So generally, this was a wonderful piece of news. Some people are putting it down to the work done by the Society for Cardiothoracic Surgery in Great Britain and Ireland because they've been particularly good on transparency. They have been publishing for about the last four or five years uh, the success rates of all the uh, heart surgeons in this country. It was very controversial when they introduced it. And actually, they won a prize from the BMJ Group Awards last year for publishing surgical mortality rates. And it was the best quality improvement award in the BMJ Group. So that's a nice piece of news. I've got another piece of news that's not quite so jolly. This is the chief executive of the NHS call, Sir David Nicholson, who addressed the NHS Employers Conference last week in Liverpool and who took a surprisingly hard line towards people in England, both doctors and managers, who didn't like the proposed reforms. Needless to say, some people in the health service are quite anxious about it. But Sir David Nicholson said, you know, if you're not with this, you're against us, more or less. He said, my view about that group is that they should go because they are not going to help us going forward and they are going to be a drag on the new systems. He said, it'll be better for us and them if they go and go soon. So I would imagine some doctors might feel that's quite sort of insulting, actually. Mm. (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, I don't know what degree of opposition he's referring to there because... I suppose there's a large number of people who exact, aren't exactly opposed to it, but aren't exactly enthusiastic either. Um, mm, so where do you stand if you're sitting on the fence? Uh, yes, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, and what else have you picked out? Well, I decided I should also talk about a, um, a foreign news story. It shouldn't be too UK-centric. 
So I picked a story which I thought was interesting from India. A few years ago, the Indian Medical Association decided to take some money from two large companies. One was PepsiCo and one was the maker of an insect repellent in exchange for endorsing their products, Tropicana fruit juice and Quaker oats. Mm. They got 115000 from PepsiCo and 60000 almost 60000 from the maker of this insect repellent. There's been protests about it for a couple of years. Anyway, now finally, the Medical Council of India, which basically regulates doctors there, They've decided it wasn't the right thing to do, and they have now decided to recommend that the two doctors who accepted or negotiated this deal, that they should be de-licensed for six months. The two doctors concerned are not very happy about this, as you can imagine. (laughs) They made the point that actually in the past, it's always been understood that doctors individually shouldn't endorse a particular product, but that Mm. they're claiming that a a group, as a group, there's no rules about it. So I think there'll be an appeal. But it was quite interesting. Our correspondent in India called Ganapati Murdu, he looked in to see whether any other associations had done this. And um, certainly the BMA has never done it as, as far as anybody's aware. But the American Medical Association in 1998 were going to endorse um, some consumer health products. But there was a big outcry from within the American Medical Association. Mm. And so they decided not to go ahead with it. Right. And uh, all those stories are available in print and also on the website. That's that right? right. Yes. Great. And we've got many, many more on the website and, and many more in the in the journal. Brilliant. Great. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Bye bye. If you'd like up-to-the-minute updates from bmj.com, including news, blogs, features, multimedia and research, don't forget our Twitter feed, bmj underscore latest. Now we go to Rebecca Coombs, who's been finding out from Pat Cross-Kerry, Professor in Emergency Medicine at Dalhousie University, Nova Scotia, Canada, why he spoke on the need for clinicians to closer examine how they made decisions. During your interesting speech, you showed a slide from a group of hospital insurers based in New England, I think? Yeah, in the Boston area. Yeah, this was a summary of data based on a four-year period, and they looked at the highest areas of litigation and the failed diagnosis area, which is wrong diagnosis, delayed diagnosis, um, misdiagnosis accounted for the most legal actions against practitioners. And the same data is pretty much replicated around, uh, can be shown around the world. If you look at the Medical Defence Union in the UK, two-thirds of all claims brought against family physicians are for diagnostic failure. We're going to move on to the question of what's going wrong. And you mentioned that very wrong, very rarely is uh, are errors because of a, a knowledge deficit very rarely, yeah. Yes. I mean, there's some, been excellent studies uh, shown on that almost invariably is not that the doctor didn't know enough about the disease process to make that mm-hmm. diagnosis, but that they simply didn't think of it or something else diverted them, something in the way, something the patient said or something in the context or, or some other factors diverted them from maybe an atypical presentation of something. In medical school, we're taught prototypical presentations of heart disease. This is what it looks like when your heart gets into trouble. You get severe retrosternal crushing chest pain radiating to your jaw and your arms and and you're sweaty and you're short of breath and and so on. But in fact, if if you work in emergency medicine, A&E, the majority of presentations are atypical. So, uh, so that's part of our problem in medical training, that we teach prototypical disease and we don't teach 
the atypical variants. You can see how people can easily be misled. And you talked about the conflict between analytical thinking and intuitive thinking, that uh, most errors occur when you're in the intuitive mode of thinking. That's right, yeah. There isn't necessarily a conflict between analytical thinking and intuitive thinking, but there is a dynamic between the two. Most of the time we default into the intuitive mode because it's a comfortable place to be, it's extremely fast, Mm -hmm. Um, it, it often serves our purpose, but at times it can be catastrophic. Yeah, we, we did a little quiz at the start of the talk where we, we put up four very simple questions. Two or three out of 300 got. So probably around 1% of the audience got all three correct. Mm-hmm. The challenge was trying to overcome your intuitive way of looking at the problem uh, and uh, applying some analytical thinking to it. Mm-hmm. You gave an interesting example of a a man turning up at a walking clinic Mm. complaining of constipation for four days. It was getting near late in the evening. They were about to close and and the guy sort of comes in at the very last minute and says that he's been constipated for the last four days and he's been trying various laxatives and they don't work. And the physician, who is distinctly overtired and overwrought, is faced with this very quick a presentation at the end and just says to the guy, I'll give you an alternate prescription for a laxative that's more powerful than the ones you've been trying. What he does is just accedes to the diagnosis that's out there and supports it. And in actual fact, the abdominal pain that the guy is experiencing is coming from his aorta tearing itself apart and he's got hours to live. The trick for a well calibrated physician is to say, it looks like this, but what else could it be? And to be aware of the factors that could mitigate against you thinking analytically, and you mentioned about fatigue. If we taught medical students more about the factors that do interfere with well-calibrated decision-making, then we would say just being awake for 16 hours, you begin to go into cognitive decline. That's if you've done nothing. If you add to that uh, sleep deprivation and so on, then you can get into serious deficits in cognitive performance. Uh, On top of that, if you add cognitive loading, which is you're making people work very hard, then there is a far greater tendency to fall into intuitive reasoning versus analytical reasoning. Next, we hear three different perspectives on the place of litigation in medicine. Rebecca Coombs reports. At Risky Business last week, one session asked the question, does litigation improve patient safety? Dr Peter Lawson, Chief of Cardiovascular Intensive Care at Children's Hospital Boston, gave a very personal view, having been involved in a lengthy malpractice case. I asked him what happened and what he thought of the US jury-based system. Uh, It involved uh, an 18-month-old child who had really severe end-of-the-spectrum cardiac disease who unfortunately suffered two adverse events under our care that left this child injured. Over the next six and a half years this case was went through the legal process and ultimately a verdict that resulted in two people having a negligence assigned against them with causation uh, and three people were found not to have contributed to the injury and therefore a defence verdict. The jury, they're meant to be 12 people of your peers But in complex cases like this, it's extremely difficult to teach the jury about the disease and the risks 
that then allows them to make uh, a judgment. And that fell to us during the trial. Now, it's extremely difficult sitting in a witness chair with 12 people looking at you without having any props, no diagrams or anything else to refer to. Whereas the strategy for the plaintiffs was not about the medicine. They weren't trying us for medical malpractice. They were trying us for what they termed obstruction of justice. And a jury gets that much more so. That was one problem with the jury. And the other is that I think they're subject to bias based on their demographics and their region that they come from. They're also biased by the way in which the arguments are presented. So if you take the type of evidence that's being presented, the way it's presented, and then mix the demographic of the jury, then I think you end up with a flawed process. Mm -hmm. But in the United States, that's what we have. James Badenoch, QC who practices in London, also agrees that a jury isn't the best way to decide clinical malpractice cases. However, in the debate, he defended the need for litigation. In the more serious cases, such as babies dying or being brain damaged, two factors, I think, emerge. One, that of course they want an apology because the thing most precious to them has been hideously injured. And secondly, of course they want to make sure that, if possible, no other parents have to suffer the same appalling sadness that they have. But in these very serious cases, apologies and explanations are not enough. These babies, for example, let's take them, the cerebral palsy cases caused by birth disaster, avoidable birth disaster. Those families have to care sometimes 24 hours a day, all round, all through the year. They never get a break, they never get a holiday. The child will never walk, never talk, have to be fed, all these ghastly possibilities, and will never live independently or earn a living. There, you have to admit that compensation is absolutely crucial in a society where, if I'm brutally frank, the welfare state simply does not provide adequately for those who are most grievously injured. When people have to perform difficult jobs with our lives or our health in their hands, just like lorry drivers or factory owners or airplane builders or flyers, the notion that if they do act carelessly and don't apply themselves properly to all the precautions to avoid risk, they may end up being sued, condemned by a judge, and publicly ordered to pay very substantial damages. That system, in the end, is the principal driver in a very complex society of risk management and risk avoidance. What would you say were the, the downsides of having a no-fault system, which I know has been spoken of as a, as a credible alternative today, uh, because it works very well in countries such as Sweden? I, I think uh, the government have, I think, more than once investigated the question of whether they could replace uh, these uh, claims by a no-fault system and decided, putting it very bluntly, that this state couldn't afford it. Um, Sweden has 9 million population. New Zealand, the other country which has tried it, has, uh, I think, fewer than that. In those circumstances, it's possible to provide a system whereby the relatively, comparatively few number of people who are desperately injured can be properly looked after by the state and where large compensation claims are not essential. Uh, There are problems that arise. In Sweden, they don't matter terribly because with huge taxation burdens on the state, the welfare state covers everything and does it very well. In New Zealand, I've always understood that the compensation payable under no fault is confined to medical accidents and the issues arise whether it really was that or whether it was act of God or simply the natural progression of your disease. So 
This country can't really afford simply to provide adequate and proper compensation to all who are disabled or ill or injured. And uh, a fault system has the double effect of compensating only those who are wronged and avoidably injured and making pay uh, those um, institutions and individuals only those who have acted carelessly in a way they should not. No-fault compensation systems are currently practised only in a small number of countries. But Professor Sheila McLean, Director of the Institute of Law and Ethics in Medicine at Glasgow University, argued at Risky Business they meet patients' needs far more than adversarial systems. It seems to me that there are um, strong reasons for arguing that a kind of private interaction between individuals is unlikely to have an effect on the overall quality of care. And litigation is essentially a private matter between a person who's aggrieved and the, pers- and the people they think have harmed them. <clears throat> that teaches nobody any lessons except it puts both parties under enormous stress. Um, I think the other uh, main reason is that if you look at what it is reported that patients want to achieve, many of them will end up using litigation only as a final, a final and unwelcome step because they have failed to get what they wanted in the first place, which was a meaningful apology, an appropriate explanation of what happened and some kind of reassurance that the system will learn from the mistakes that have been made. And although that will not be the case for every patient and there may be some for whom financial compensation is an absolute essential, um, it is the case for a lot of them. We commissioned some research as part of our inquiry and and our research findings replicated work that's been done um, elsewhere as well and that suggests that some of them mention compensation but for most of them it was way down the list of priorities. I think you mentioned something in the, d- in the debate about litigation encouraging secrecy and defensiveness. and The, the no-fault system encourages the system to learn from mistakes and you can discuss freely what went wrong. The fact is that if you were confronted with a hostile situation, an adversarial situation, although your defence organisations in the United Kingdom at least will encourage people to tell the truth, you could see from the profound emotion that one of the speakers in particular had gone through, that it would not be an encouragement to walk up front and say, I did something wrong in in an adversarial system. Patients very often feel that they're being lied to, that they're being stonewalled by the system. Even if the patient's perception is wrong, um, it's very, very easy to see how the trust that we actually need between doctors and patients in resolving these kind of problems can be easily eroded. Now, in, in New Zealand, for example, doctors actually help their patients to to put together the claim to use a compensation scheme. And I think the other very important thing is about no-fault systems is that they encourage or at least facilitate a focus on rehabilitation. So if they have a a, a need for um, a prosthesis or if they have a need for some kind of changes to their home or whatever, a no-fault system is much more likely to be able to incorporate that into the overall decision that it reaches that is the system we have here at the moment. And what do you say to those critics, lawyers for example, who say you know this country, the UK, can't afford to pay adequate compensation to all who are injured and disabled? To me that's a pragmatic rather than a principled point and I think we should be arguing from principle. It, it, It may well be the case that it would be an expensive way forward but that doesn't mean it's not a good way forward, it just means we have to rethink our priorities. At the moment NHS litigation services are setting aside millions and millions and millions of pounds for future litigation. And we're left also with the incredible anomaly that you can be just as badly damaged and almost identically damaged. Um, But if you can't prove 
convinced if somebody was at fault, then you can't get any support. Whereas in a no-fault system, not needing to prove that means that the state is much more likely to come to your assistance. Finally, I asked Peter what lessons his division learnt from the trial and if, in this case, it's improved patient safety. It hasn't changed the way in which we practice medicine. And the reason for that is that this was a, a case that was right at the extremes. This was a child that had that with treatment at another equivalent institution had been, they'd signed off and said, there's nothing more that we can do. And then one physician at our place said, yes, I think I can help you and do something. So that when that occurred, we all then assumed the risk for this patient. And I think one of the things we've actually changed is this is not one individual being sued. This was a team of people being sued. And yet the team of people didn't buy into necessarily the risk at the, out front, at the outset. One of the things we've looked at is how do we vet that risk? In other words, one person can't take on the risk and then involve everybody else. Mm -hmm. So we've looked at the way in which we assign risk and discuss risk, Is because everybody has different opinions. And there have been a couple of cases since this time that we have said, somebody has said, I think I can do something, and then the others that would be involved and therefore assuming that risk also have said, we don't agree, and we haven't gone forward with the case. So that's one aspect. In terms of global patient safety and the way in which we practice, the decisions we made, the treatment we offer, that hasn't changed. There was nothing that we were going to learn from it that would change our culture and change our decision making. And quite frankly, that's the only way we're going to be able to benefit from any legal proceedings. But while, it's, while there's no learning, while it's adversarial, while it's all about the dollars, that's not going to happen. Peter Lawson ending that report. If you'd like more on the discussions at Risky Business, there are features and blogs on our website. Also, videos of all the speakers are, very generously, available online for free at risky-business.com forward slash events. That's everything for this week. Coming up in the next edition, we hear from Save the Children's Head of Health, Simon Wright. Thanks for joining us. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.